Critical Care Practitioner Podcast, number 12. Welcome to another episode of Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. My name is Jonathan Downham, and this is the podcast to inform, debate, and discuss all things critical care, wherever in your hospital that might be. Get ready. Hi, my name's Chris Nixon. I'm a fellow at the Alfred ITU, and you're listening to the Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. It's lovely to speak to you again. Um, I hope you're enjoying this lovely summer. I certainly am. Just come back from a holiday in the New Forest. Uh, We endured, or we're very lucky to have, temperatures between sort of 25 to 30 degrees with blue, clear skies. We actually went swimming in the sea, which in this country for me is unheard of. So it was a lovely, lovely time. As a consequence, I've weighed myself this morning and I've put on about seven pounds in weight, so I've got a bit of uh, weight to lose until the next one, which is only three weeks away. So I hope you're all enjoying the summer as much as I am. And for those of you holidaying abroad, I hope you're going to enjoy that as well. To tell you what I've been up to really with Critical Care Practitioner podcast and the website, the podcast today is a discussion with a gentleman called Dr. John Cress. Uh, Dr. Cress is a doctor over in Chicago. He's an IT physician from the University of Chicago. Uh, he's a highly respected and well-published doctor with an interest in ICU-acquired weakness. And that's the paper that we discuss with him today, or I discuss with him today. ICU-acquired weakness and recovery from critical illness, which is in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, in April of 2014. So we discussed that with him. He was very kind to um, give me an interview. It was a bit difficult to arrange. Um, he wasn't that familiar with Skype, but we got it together. He persevered, and I'm very grateful for him for doing that as well. And uh, there's a lot of useful information to be learned from that. He's actually one of the gentlemen that started the daily interruption of sedation, which I think probably a lot of people do now in intensive care. Um, he was one of the authors of the paper back in 2000, Daily Interruption of Sedative Infusions in Critically Ill Patients Undergoing Mechanical Ventilation. I've got links to both these papers in the show notes for this particular podcast, so you can always go there and have a look. We discuss lots of things and we arrive to some conclusions of the best way to treat patients who are long-term patients in intensive care. But listen to the podcast and I'm sure you'll um, glean a lot of useful stuff from that. Smack US Chicago June 23rd to 26th 2015 Nixon Flower Weingart May Rohi Malimat Levitan Reed Carly Rogers Got the date? June 23rd to 26th 2015 Smack US Chicago. Book it now. My name is John Cress, and I'm uh, in the University of Chicago in the section of pulmonary and critical care. Um, and I uh, work 
uh, in the medical intensive care unit where I do patient care and research also and have had an interest in um, ICU-acquired weakness and uh, recovery from critical illness now for a number of years. And so we've been doing some work and looking at ways to improve uh, patients' outcomes after uh, surviving in the intensive care unit. And, um, and that's really where I think most of this conversation comes from. The intensive care unit you work in, just to get a bit of a background, is that a general intensive care or does it specialize in various other cardiothoracics, for example, that kind of thing? The one I work in is a medical intensive care unit. We have a, a number of different specialty ICUs, medical, surgical, neuro, cardio, sur- cardiothoracic surgery, cardiology, burn. We have a number of different units. I. I spend time in all of them, but the lion's share of the time I spend is in medical ICU. Would it be fair to say that an area of special interest is is ICU-acquired weakness? Is that where this paper comes from, that that's something that you've been particularly interested in? Yes. Um, so what um, initially prompted you to write this article? Why, why, why did you feel the need to write this article in particular? This problem of ICU-acquired weakness is a um, is one that has growing awareness. I think the awareness comes from uh, a couple of things. Most importantly, patients' survival after extreme illness is incru- improving. So patients uh, 20 years ago perhaps may not have lived through the kinds of illnesses that we now are able to get them through. And because of that, when survivors after such extreme uh, intensity of illness come out the other side, uh, they often have extreme dysfunctional states of physical as well as mental cognitive problems. And so increasing ICU survivors equals more chronic and long-term illness where recovery is, uh, is challenging. And that's, mm-hmm. that's where this area of interest, from my perspective, has grown. And I think the community of intensive care clinicians, likewise, have followed in with the realization that this is a, a common problem. And, and can you can you actually put any um, numbers to this this growing problem? Is this something that's uh, actually been clarified as as far as uh, cost is concerned, or is this just um, a fairly anecdotal process? Oh, I think it's more than anecdotal. Most recent paper that looked at the incidence of ARDS in the United States, uh, somewhere around 750,000 cases per year. Now, that was a paper from almost a decade ago, if I recall. But, of course, if you have 750,000 cases per year, and now the most recent data on ICU mortality from using one example, ARDS. When I said 750,000, I was referring to ARDS, which is not the only problem that leads to critical illness, but it's a very common one and one of the more severe ones. So 750,000 ARDS patients a year, uh, and now the mortality for ARDS is mid-20% as opposed to 40 or even 50 or 60% as it was decades ago. So, of course, if you have a 25% mortality, you have a 75% survivorship. So as the survivorship rate increases, the number of patients who survive with these chronic uh, neuromuscular deconditioning conditions uh, is on the rise. 
So I think there are some concrete numbers there. This is a growing problem because of our success in getting patients with high acuity illness through their illness. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think some of the... I think the development in intensive care means that we can put patients through uh, many more procedures that perhaps we couldn't have done 10 years ago, which is also adding to their survival rate and as a consequence their long-term recovery um, is, is more prolonged. Do you think that would be fair to say? Yes, absolutely. And not only physical, but, but cognitive dysfunction, uh, the two are clearly interrelated going hand in hand. If patients are cognitively impaired, their ability to be physically active and to recover from their illness is going to be compromised. Yeah. yeah. So just to go to the uh, the article, I, like I said, I, I, I read it with great interest and I want to get to some of the points at the end because I think this is how um, we can plan our way forward. But there was just one or two concepts in there that I, I'm not that familiar with and, and perhaps you would be able to clarify because I, I encountered three separate terms in there um, that I just would like to clarify a little. We have a critical illness polyneuropathy, a critical illness myopathy and a critical illness neuromyopathy. Now, are they very fine distinctions or are these, do these manifest themselves in very different ways, requiring different treatments, different risk factors, um, or, are, or are they very closely related? Well, I think they're related. The neuropathy is a distinct clinical entity that's described as, as we wrote about it in that article. It's been known since the early 80s with an um, injury to the nerve axon that occurs in conjunction with critical illness. The reason it happens, or reasons, plural, is not fully understood. Some people speculate that it might be microscopic, microvascular injury leading to ischemia of the nerves and then nerve death. Um, others speculate that it might have something to do with problems with sodium channels. As we wrote in the article, a number of different mechanisms but the end result is you see a loss of neurons in these patients, and that leads to weakness. The myopathy is a, a different pathophysiology where you actually have injury to muscle directly, um, and the end result, from a clinician's perspective, weakness may be difficult, if not impossible, to disentangle. Mm-hmm. But they are physiologically different phenomena. And then neuromyopathy just speaks to the reality that many times patients have some of both of these problems. And that's why the term ICU-acquired weakness, which is more of a descriptive syndrome rather than a specific pathophysiology, uh, has been um, the nomenclature that most people in this area have um, been inclined to lean towards. Now, um, how one proceeds research interventions and focusing on one particular aspect or another will depend largely on the kind of research that you're doing. Certainly in an animal model, for example, one might focus on a very precise type of nerve injury or muscle injury, whereas in a clinical intervention, one might focus on the global type of patient. There's many different ways one could strategize that in terms of research projects. You, you talk uh, the the other one of the other terms that I um, came across, um, and again, it's not something that I'm that familiar with. Um, we talked about um, assessing the muscular weakness of the patients, and there's a nice uh, flow chart in there. Sorry, I'm just I'm just 
actually scrolling to it now, which is the Diagnostic Algorithm for the Evaluation of Weakness in the Critically Ill Patients. And it talks about the Medical Research Council scale grading the strength of various muscle groups. The thing I was a little bit unclear of was that a combined score of less than 48 is diagnostic of ICU acquired weakness. How is that score uh, totaled up? A combined score is this is the various muscle groups and then you combine them together. So are we talking about assessing abduction and adduction of the various joints and then adding those together or how does that work? Yeah, that's right. So there are obviously four limbs and each limb has a proximal, a mid, and a distal aspect, shoulder, elbow, wrist, hip, knee, ankle. Zero to five is the strength scale. Zero, no movement at all. Five, normal, full strength against resistance. And so each of the limbs gets a score, and uh, you have two shoulders, two elbows, two wrists, two hips, two knees, two ankles. Each mm -hmm. of those gets... Uh, a zero to five scale, you sum them up. If the scale altogether is less than 48, the admittedly arbitrary but reasonable definition is if the number is less than 48, you get the label ICU acquired weakness. That's just sort of how it works. And one could quibble over how reliable that definition is and whether it's the best definition or an alternative should be used. But for the time being, it's been the mainstream clinical definition that most people have agreed upon. And do you, do you know why the number 48 was, was, was used? Is that, is that a reliable figure? Uh, well, it's a reliable figure. It's used because that means that your score is 4 out of 5 or less across the board, which is, um, uh, that's just been the the measure that's been used for you know more than a decade now to define this syndrome. Okay, I mean obviously the patient and, and the algorithm does say this, the patient needs to be awake and able to follow instructions. How does that become more difficult when you have say for example patients with a mild degree of delirium which is obviously another issue in the intensive care unit that we, we, we struggle to deal with sometimes? That's a, a very good question um, and the answer is not well. So when the patient can't follow the instruction, uh, you may be inclined to give a, a lower score than is really deserved because the patient is unable to follow the instructions. And if that's the case, you know, that can be problematic. So, uh, but it's the best tool we have that's widely available and relatively easy to use. So would you say that as, as well as patient awake and able to follow instructions, you need to be clear that the perhaps the, the delirium score is also something like CAM-ICU is also taken into account to ensure that it's not, a, it's not a functional ability that you're testing rather than a cognitive one? So the standard definition right now does not carry the cognitive piece into it, meaning, for example, if a patient is unable to follow instructions, they may get a very low score, and you could call it a low score, and you could call it ICU-acquired weakness. Mm -hmm. uh, one could argue that a person should be able to follow instructions or, or the test is useless. That would be one extreme. The other extreme would be it's the best we have, and the fact that people can't always follow instructions is just part and parcel with our incomplete ability to name and describe these problems. Most people lean more towards the latter, that is, 
yes, the cognitive piece matters, but if you get a 48 or, or less than 48, you're going to be called ICU-acquired weakness. And we cast a wider net, so to speak, recognizing that sometimes we're taking people in whose muscles may be just fine, whose nerves may be just fine, but whose mind isn't there. And um, that's, that's a problem, but it's the best we have right now. So do you know of, because I mean, there's, there's plenty of research out there about the various sedation scoring systems. Do you know whether there's research out there that uh, has been done or is going to be done to assess the, the various scorings, this particular scoring system and how it correlates to um, actuality? Well, people talk about that. The problem is, how do you define actuality as a gold standard? There is no... Yeah way to do that. So such a research protocol be very challenging because um, I could look at someone and say, well, this person is, is clearly not following my instructions. And I can't tell then if their weakness is because of their nerves, muscles, or mind, or some combination of them. In other words, the muscle might be just fine, but they just don't understand what I'm asking them to do. But how do you test that? Mm-hmm. Because if the person can't follow instructions, then their muscles are behaving in a way that is veiled by their delirium, and you can't take that veil away. Now, people talk about, well, you can do um, nerve conduction or electromyography types of studies and get a better sense of that, but those all have limitations too. So it's a very difficult problem to disentangle, and I don't I don't know that there's an easy solution. If you were to ask me how to design a study to verify that this indeed exists, I would say I don't think you could do that. It's one of those things that you know it because you see it, but how do you quantify it? I don't know that someone can do that. Okay, so let's just move on from that as well. Uh, Just to talk specifically about um, some of your experiences with um, this scoring system and the um, interventions that you uh, take part in afterwards. Um, Your unit itself, do you have a specific time at which you're going to assess this patient's MRC score? Do you do it on all your patients or do you just do it on the patients that you're concerned about? What what routine would you have? Well, I do it. Uh, I don't do it on every patient. Some patients, uh, most of what we're talking about is a much more relevant issue in patients that require mechanical ventilation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if a patient comes in, for example, for a gastrointestinal bleed, we see a lot of those patients. And they're sitting there chatting with me, and we're just trying to figure out why they're bleeding, and just to pick a common example. I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time looking at ICU-acquired weakness and MRC scores for that type of patient, which is sort of an ironic paradox because those are the patients for whom the test would be the most valid because they're not delirious. So the problems get tangled together. So in general, in patients that are in the intensive care unit who um, require mechanical ventilation, who have sepsis or septic shock, who have multi-organ system failure, that's the population for whom this problem is most likely to be troubling and the, the group for whom we typically focus our, um, our clinical efforts on. Now, we do get physical therapists involved in patients' care very early, um, and certainly the therapists can also do such assessments. Uh, many patients come in weak for reasons that have nothing to do with their critical illness. They're weak before they got sick, and so the therapist might look at them and say, 
this person has a background weakness because of, I don't know, say an old stroke, for example, and this is going mm -hmm. to make, this background problem is going to make their current recovery more challenging because they just had a new insult on a background of some chronic dysfunction. So the therapists are quite good at, at teasing that out. Once the therapists are happy that they've assessed the physical status pre-illness of the patient, what kind of processes are they going through to try and move the patient forward with this? Let's assume you, you've decided they've got an ICU-acquired weakness. Uh, does that change the approach they have with that patient? Or do or ICU-acquired weakness or not, are all your patients treated much the same once they start to start the improvement pathway? Because we're all well aware that you know you can't do much with a patient who's still very, very sick on high amounts of oxygen, probably requiring sedatives. There's not much progress to be made. But once you start the weaning process, what processes can be put in place for those with ICU-acquired weakness over and above those that possibly don't have it? Well, believe it or not, that's actually not true. We, we did a study about five years ago where we took mechanically ventilated patients. While they were still on the ventilator, many of them, the majority, had ARDS, acute lung injury, ARDS, and subjected them to early physical therapy. And their um, outcomes as a function of the early physical therapy in the randomized trial were substantially better with regard to their functional status when they left the hospital. So a patient on a ventilator, at least in my view, should have immediate assessment by a physical therapist and begin working right away with them, even while they're still on the ventilator. In a study that we did uh, five years ago, uh, we had patients who were actually able to walk, stand up and walk, while still intubated on the ventilator. Okay. Not everyone but we were able to demonstrate that was feasible and the patients had a dramatic improvement in their outcomes compared to usual care. Um, so we, in my own um, area of research interest, and I think the, the published literature also, would say respiratory failure on a ventilator is probably the most important group of patients to target. Sepsis, septic shock, those patients often are on a ventilator, but not always. Those patients, likewise, are probably going to benefit from early activity. Um, and, and then anyone else, of course. Um, the, the downside, other than human power, clinicians doing the work, is really nil. The risk is trivial. Uh, physical activity in physical therapists and occupational therapists' hands. I have read some of those papers and uh, I think it's quite an exciting way to move forward. I, I know um, I was at the Intensive Care Society conference in London just before um, Christmas of last year and I, I, the lady will have to forgive me, I don't remember her name, but she was an American nurse who was very much advocating the getting the patients up and mobile even when they were ventilated, which which apparently makes a, such a huge difference to their to their uh, longer-term well-being. Like you say, uh, does it actually show any benefit to mortality as well? I wasn't clear whether it did or it didn't. No study, to my knowledge, has shown a mortality benefit to date. So, yeah, so far, no. But I suppose more studies might show something different. But right now, no, there's no mortality benefit. But I suppose one of the things that it probably does, and, and perhaps a reason in, in and of itself for doing it, is that their psychological well-being must improve dramatically when they can start moving about, sitting upright, rather than being this patient in the bed constantly. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
I got to the end of the the document, and um, I think we we've already talked about some of the things. But some of the possible preventative measures that you you, you discussed were um, the early physical activity, which we've talked about already, and minimising sedation. Now. I don't know how you feel about this, but the evidence seems to be a bit mixed at the moment. Do you, is sedation holidays something you do, or is that not something that you, you, you advocate in your hospital? Uh, no, I, I do advocate it. We, we actually were the ones that originally published that 15 years ago. So, yes, I, I, do, I do advocate it. I mean, the, I don't think the evidence, frankly, I'm not sure the evidence is mixed. I think there are studies that have suggested sedation holidays don't improve outcomes. But if you look at the background, we move forward. Uh, usual care changes. So now usual care often has some degree of reduction in sedation. So I think there's more than one way to skin a cat, so to speak. But to keep patients in a drug-induced coma indefinitely clearly has been shown to be harmful. Um, whether you stop the drug every day as a sedation holiday, uh, whether you reduce it in an um, algorithmic fashion, whether you down titrate it to the least amount necessary, we could quibble over these various strategies. But the underlying constant there is minimization of sedatives, and I think that's pretty clearly been shown to be beneficial. Okay, and which, which of those three approaches do you use at the moment? We do the stop the daily sedative interruption. Uh, is that for every patient, or is that, I mean, that's obviously um, clinical well-being as well, presumably? Yeah, I mean, I, there are very few patients for whom you can't do it. Certainly a patient who's receiving neuromuscular blocking drugs, paralytics, you can't stop the sedative because the patient will be awake and paralyzed. That's not, that's inhumane to do that. Yeah. Uh, apart from that, there are very few patients, uh, some would argue extremely high levels of PEEP, or extremely tenuous hypoxemia. Um, none of those scenarios have been studied extensively and systematically, so it's largely driven by anecdote. There are no hard data there. Uh, in my experience, those patients can have sedatives reduced as long as you're aware and prepared for the possibility that the patient may deteriorate and sedatives uh, needs to be restarted in a timely fashion. Are you, because I, I, uh, we hear a lot about analgesia first um, sedation methods these days, so you know the, the, the need to worry about the patient's analgesic rather than their sedative levels, is, is that a, a policy that you advocate in your hospital as well? Is, is, is the analgesics first or do you find yourself still having a very much a combination of the sedative and the analgesic to keep the patients comfortable? I think the analgesic first strategy is a good one. For many patients, analgesics are, uh, if you give an opiate analgesic, uh, that's all you need. You don't need anything other than that. And there are studies that have shown that to be so. A, a paper from a Danish group, I think about four years ago, showed that in the majority of patients in a medical ICU getting mechanical ventilation, morphine only was uh, inadequate, adequate, not inadequate, was, was an adequate strategy. And, yeah. Um, so I believe that's a wise approach. And then if you need additional medication, you can add it on step by step. Yeah. Okay. Um, so just just to draw to a close, and and thanks very much for speaking to me about this. It's really interesting to to hear your views on it. What out of if if you had to put your finger on one 
possible um, treatment method you would use, which one would be the one you would choose above all others to improve the, the not not necessarily the incidence of ICU acquired weakness, but the treatment of it. Because as as a nurse, it's something that I think um, the treatment side is something that we can affect more fully um, with the longer term patient. Well, I think in the short term, the um, the early mobility, there, there's nothing else that's even close in terms of having a potential impact, at least to date. So, um, you, but you can't do um, subject patients to early mobility unless they're awake and able to follow instructions. So, minimization of sedatives followed by early mobility, I think, is is the best strategy. The group of patients that's most at risk for this are sepsis ARDS patients. And so to the extent that you can treat the sepsis aggressively as, as part of what we typically do, early antibiotics um, and drainage of um, walled off collections of infection, abscess, things of that sort, early surgery when it's indicated for controlling the source of the sepsis, those sorts of, of things. But in terms of what can the bedside nurse do, I think it's having an awake interactive patient who can sit up. In my experience, the critical branch point is when the patient sits at the edge of the bed and has his or her feet on the floor. Okay. So the feet on the floor, you could still be sitting in the bed dangling your feet, but they have to be dangled and, and touching the floor, not necessarily standing. Standing is okay. a great step forward, but until you get... If you can sit your patient up and have their feet dangling, uh, that uh, recruits the, the core muscles, the trunk muscles for balance, uh, which very quickly become dysfunctional in, in sick people that are laying in bed. Um, it allows the patient to be more mentally engaged because if you're sitting up at the edge of the bed, you're looking around at your surroundings. You're um, able to many times infer from that experience that the patient is recognizing his or her surroundings, distinguishing night from day, that sort of thing that is all part of what we normally do as humans that don't even give it much thought because it's just routine. But those things are lost quickly when you're sick, stuck on a ventilator in a bed, staring at the ceiling. Okay. Uh, so I think those are the things that I would advocate trying to do. You can sit the patient up, swing their hips 90 degrees, let the feet dangle, if you can accomplish that, everything else beyond that is icing on the cake, but that's a critical, if I had to ask my or tell my bedside nurses, what would be the most important concrete thing you could try to accomplish each day would be that. And would, th would that be just for, uh, you know, sit up, feet on floor, that's mission accomplished, or would you advocate that for a period of time? Well, if you can do that, you have taken the patient in a frame shift sort of way into a better spot. Mm -hmm. Everything beyond that is, way, is is also very important. Standing, marching in place, walking, all those things are infinitely more important. But if you get the patient sitting at the edge of the bed compared to those who don't get that far, it's a quantum leap. And then everything beyond that is additional smaller quantum leaps, but, but progress forward. But um, if you just move the arms back and forth, um, if you just kind of sit the patient up with the bed, uh, the back of the bed set, sitting you upright, um, none of that is, is unimportant. 
But in terms of the biggest jump from one step to the other, I would say turn 90 degrees, sitting on edge of bed, dangling feet on floor, that's um, the biggest step along this pathway from point A to point B. Um, is there anything um, you're, you've got your hands involved in at the moment as far as research is concerned in this subject, or are you planning something in the future? The next step that we're interested in, in the work that we did before, showed a benefit to early activity that was short-term. What I mean by short-term is people who left the hospital had better functional condition than when they got early mobility than those who didn't. What we don't know is, does that benefit when you march out the door of the hospital stay with you down the road? So we're now looking at one-year follow-up of the same population subjected to early mobility or not. Uh, is it true that those patients start out better off, but the other group catches up to them? Is it true that the benefit they get falls off very quickly and the two groups basically regress to the mean or, or, or not? Because I think that has great implications for healthcare policy, given that therapy in um, general, uh, there are more patients who need this than there are clinicians to provide it. There's a shortage of physical and occupational therapists, at least in the United States. And so if I'm going to try to say we should have more physical therapists working in intensive care, I'd like to be able to say right now, when you leave the intensive care unit, we have a study, randomized perspective, um, blinded study, that showed that patients had better function when they left the hospital. I think it would be compelling to healthcare administrators if I could say, and this benefit is sustained for a long period of time, say at a year. And that's what we're currently looking at. Okay, great. And any idea when that might be published or not? Oh, it's yet? a couple of years away. We're continuing to enroll patients. We're also looking at um, uh, their psychological function. Uh, are they are they physically and or mentally better in terms of their overall function? The work is largely driven by the published work on ARDS survivors, where previous investigators, the group from Toronto, has shown that. ARDS survivors, even five years after their illness, are still physically below the norm. Young people, median age in the mid-40s, as I recall, five years out are still physically dysfunctional compared to the average population in, in the group that was studied. And what we found in, in the work that we're doing is or what we hypothesize, rather, is that if you subject patients to early activity, you can improve their physical function and get them closer to the mean of the population at large rather than a standard deviation or even two standard deviations below that. So that's what we're targeting right now. It's going to be a few more years, I think, before we're there in terms of completing the trial. Okay, fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing the results of that. And uh, I would, hopefully I might be able to come and pest you again once we see those results and we can chat about that if you'd be happy enough to do that for me. Yeah, of course. Okay, I hope you found that as interesting as I did. It was great to talk to Dr. Cress and for him to be able to spare the time and hopefully we'll be able to go back and pick his brains at some other point. Very experienced clinician, um, very useful to be able to pick his brains. Some of the other things I've been doing on the website, I've been trying to analyse some of the more important research papers. 
I've done a lot on fluids and some on proning and ARDS protocols as well. And that's something I'm going to expand on slowly, hopefully. So go and have a look at the website. There's more and more being added to it every day. One of the other things I want to do, and I've been doing this via Twitter, is trying to establish something I'm going to call question time. And this is where I'm trying to gather together people from the NHS who can discuss and generate ideas. So I call it question time because I'm hoping it might be a little bit like a question time panel eventually. I'm going to put a date out for that on Twitter fairly soon. I'm hoping it's going to be in October. I'm working with a young manager in the NHS called Pollyanna Jones, who was also involved in the NHS Change Day, along with Helen Barton and, and many others. So hopefully we'll get a date published for that soon. And I'm hoping that this can become a regular thing for people to listen to and, and we can generate ideas and, and help people move things forward. I'm still looking for people to join me on Google Hangouts. I'm always on the, the prowl on the uh, internet and on Twitter. I'm often asking people on Twitter to come and join me. And as a consequence, we've got some upcoming interviews. Uh, another one with Ken Spearpoint, who's the resuscitation guy, and he runs the master's level simulation course down at Imperial College in London. Another interview with him. The first one was so interesting. An interview with a lady called Dr. Louise Rose over in Canada about how she manages delirium in her long-term weaning unit. And then with Dr. Lee Cutler, who discusses his article on oral decontamination and how they set up the study, etc., etc. So all very interesting stuff coming up, so hopefully in future podcasts. You can leave me some comments on SpeakPipe. In fact, I'll just play you a quick one because um, this gentleman did, and it just shows the reach I have around the world. Thank you for this beautiful site. This is very helpful in my practitioner life. Thank you very, very much. I'm Omar Bassam from Jordan, fourth year medical student. Thank you. I was delighted to hear this from him. Um, it's just really interesting to see um, the kind of audience I'm getting and where they're coming from. So if you want to leave any comments on SpeakPipe, just go to my website and it's very easy to do so. If you do subscribe to my website, I'm generating a newsletter. I'm trying to get one out every couple of weeks, which tells you some of the changes on the website, some of the things I've been involved in. And, and it's an email in your inbox. I'm not going to send you any spam. I won't send you constant emails about stuff you don't want to know about. So if you want to subscribe, please do go to my website. There's plenty of opportunities to su subscribe to that as well. And the last thing is, if you enjoy this podcast... This is number 12, so obviously there's an, another 11 of them. If you go into iTunes and look for Critical Care Practitioner Podcast, you can subscribe there. If you do listen and you do subscribe, it'd be nice if you could rate them for me. And if you could leave a comment, that would be even better. It just means that uh, I'm more likely to be found by other people. I hope you've enjoyed this one as much as I've enjoyed making it. I, I'm still enjoying making them. It's great fun. It's my opportunity to network. And I hope you get as much out from it as, as I do making them. Anyway, speak to you next time. Bye-bye.